Chapter Four of A Soldier of the Legion by George Mannington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, Part Two. To reached out his skinny little brown hand and picked up his pipe, fondling it an instant prior to warming the bowl in the flames. His keen black eyes glancing over his favorite with the fond look of satisfaction and gratitude one sees on the face of a man who greets a well-beloved wife this pipe if such it can be called for neither in bowl nor stem did it resemble the instrument we give that name to was of similar form to that used by all orientals who inhale opium fumes it consisted of a stem about two feet long of polished bamboo about one and a half inches in diameter the lower end being closed by an ivory cap while the other extremity was covered by a disc of silver with a small round hole in the center of it to this the lips were placed when the fumes were inhaled about six inches from the lower end of the stem the bamboo was pierced to receive the neck of the bowl shaped like a hollow flat bulb the top had a diameter of about three inches and was well polished and slightly convex in the middle was a tiny hole about as big as a pin's head it is perhaps as well to explain that no opium gets into the bowl for it is consumed over the hole in the smooth convex surface on the top owing to the air in the bulb having been inhaled and the consequent creation of a temporary vacuum thus only the fumes pass through the little orifice up the stem and into the lungs of the smoker now to was warming his pipe over the flame of the lamp withdrawing it now and then to gently polish the surface of the bulb upon the sleeve of his khaki jacket his better half dipped one of the little silver skewers into the tiny pot and after turning it round drew it out covered with a coating of the rich brown drug which looked like thick treacle this she held over the flame for a second it frizzled and gained in consistency she withdrew it and dipped it again into the drug and it increased in volume three or four times this operation was repeated until there was sufficient opium in the skewer to make a good pipe the dove now held his pipe in his mouth and the tip of the flame licked the smooth warm surface of the bowl on which his spouse began to roll the opium holding the other end of the pipe in her left hand to steady it her dexterity was marvellous in a few seconds the drug was detached from the skewer and was rolled into a little ball about the size of a pea she threw a glance at toe which meant are you ready he nodded and started drawing at the bamboo a gentle movement and the skewer pushed the ball of opium onto the tiny hole and it was held just over the lamp there was a frizzle as the drugs began to burn continuing under the steady prolonged suction of the smoker there was no smoke for it was all going up the pipe into the little brown man's lungs his eyes were half closed and his features expressed a gentle beatitude but his chest was swelling swelling soon he could not continue the steady suction and he drew at the bamboo with a succession of small quick pants his wife, in the meanwhile, held the bowl well over the flame and pushed up to the orifice the tiny particles of the drug still adhering to the convex surface. Presently all was consumed. 
I, on seeing this for the first time, sighed with relief, as one who had escaped from witnessing a catastrophe, when the smoker opened his mouth and allowed the black smoke to escape slowly from between his lacquered teeth, which shone like ebony in the dim light of the tiny lamp. Tho watched the opaque column as it climbed slowly upwards to the bamboo cross-poles of his hut, and forming into a little cloud, clung to the thatch of the roof. Yet, good, he exclaimed, and then prepared for another. The air in the tiny room was now heavy with the odor of the drug, which at first seemed acrid and unpleasant, but it improved on acquaintance and soon became soothing and enjoyable. The dove liked to smoke his opium in peace, and knowing this, I sat waiting until he should see fit to break the silence outside the day was fast drawing to a close and the short eastern sunset would in a few minutes be changed into night from the chinaman's shanty a few paces away came the sound of a rollicking ditty sung by some of my comrades over a pint of wine or a glass of absinthe the noise seemed to wake all the sicarlas in the neighbourhood for they started at once a concert of chirping whistles in the half-dried-up pools outside the village, thousands of noisy members of the Betrachian tribe broke into an endless chorus of complaint at the unwanted dryness of the season, while from time to time their big uncles, the bullfrogs, added a booming croak of approval. The matting hanging before the doorway of the hut swung back a little, moved by a hot breeze which brought to the nostrils a whiff of flowers and vegetation in decay, and I could see the fireflies already circling down the little street or about the thatch-covered canyas. The heat was terrific, and seemed, if possible, less supportable now than it had done during the hours of blinding, scorching sunshine. All the earth seemed to radiate the caloric it had been stoking up during the day. When would the rains break? Those rains the other men who knew had told me of rains that chilled you to the bone and made your teeth chatter the thought that in the past it seemed years ago i had somewhere shivered with the cold made me laugh aloud as after throwing off my light cotton jacket and rolling up my shirt sleeves i sat mopping the perspiration from my forehead the veins of my neck seemed to swell and my breath came in gasps thinking that it might be somewhat cooler there i stepped into the street and taking out my pouch tried to roll a cigarette three times the thin paper broke in my sticky perspiring fingers before i succeeded in obtaining a damp and flabby apology for a smoke this slight exertion had caused me to perspire from every pore and it seemed hotter outside than within my light clothes clung to my limbs like those of a man pulled out of a pond disgusted i returned and sat down again on the edge of the bed and after endless difficulty succeeded in lighting my damp cigarette with a still damper match the tiny twinkle of the opium lamp deepened the darkness outside the small circle of its light toe's brownish-yellow features on which it shone reminded me of a quaint and clever old japanese ivory i had once seen and the dark background of the night was like the black velvet-lined case which had contained it from where i sat i could see the arm of the sergeant's wife bare from the elbow 
and I watched with a kind of sleepy fascination her small and nimble fingers as they manipulated the drug. The soft light gave to her skin a rich gold tint and made the arm and hand look graceful and comely. The Rembrandt-like effect of the picture gripped me, and for the moment the heat was forgotten. Toe's voice brought me from a waking dream when, after laying down his pipe, he said, "'Patience, comrade, it will come. When the bullfrogs join in the song, the great waters are not far off. Were you on sentry tonight, you would hear the dreary note of the rainbird, for I'd stake a week's pay she will be out. Ba, his wife, tells me it sang today before sunrise, but women were ever dreamers.' The little woman looked up from her task of cleaning the silver skewer, and retorted, "'Dreamers! O oh, great slaughterer of men! And dost thou give me time to dream? Is not my life as full of work as our mountain rise is full of fat? Am I not still a toe from the dam toe? A group of mountains to the west of Tainyin. Are not my teeth white, though I have a husband who has blackened his, and become a plainsman?' As she smiled at her own wit, I caught a flash of ivory between her red lips, and noticed for the first time the regularity of her small features. The doy smiled good-naturedly, and replied, "'Oh, thou silly one! Thou art pretty as an angry parakeet, and talkest faster!' Then to me, had I not lacquered my poor teeth, though my ancestors know the grief I suffered from it, how could I have gone, dressed like a peddler, to spy in the villages for the government? Had I tried so to do, the Danam would have eaten my liver long since. As it is, some day I shall probably eat his. Bah, get ready another pipe for me. Nay, nay, she answered, as she lit a small kerosene lamp of German make, and placed it on the bed. Thou hast eaten ten times of the drug, and it is thy just ration." She blew out the small light and carried away the tray, saying to me as she did so, Were I to listen to this man, he would turn all the government dollars he gets into black smoke, and I and my sons would have to go in shame to my father and beg for food. It was very evident that Madame Ba ruled the roost, and it was probably better so. Toe growled a little and protested to me, Was ever man burdened with such a wife? She has no respect for me, the senior sergeant in the company. Now, had I married—here he was interrupted by the first notes of the bugle calling us back to the fort, and we rose together and hurried out of the hut. It was quite dark outside. Toe did not speak until we had nearly reached the gate, and then he said, "'Camarade, when the time comes, I hope you will find for yourself a white woman with a heart like Ba's. Bonne nuit!' and he ran off to his section. Lying on my bed that night, I communicated to my neighbor, Lipti, a Hungarian, the incidents of the evening, and together we laughed over the recital of Little Toe's domestic worries. This roommate of mine had come out with our detachment on the Benoit. On our arrival at Nanam, we had been given beds next each other, and our acquaintance was fast ripening into a close friendship. Lipte had joined in April of the preceding year. Shortly before this, he held a commission in the Austrian army, which he had resigned. A braver, more loyal, and upright nature I have never met. 
I have never learnt the reason which brought him into the Legion, but am convinced they were honourable, for during the four years we were almost continually together, his speech and conduct were always those of a gentleman in the truest sense of the word. He was an adept at military topography, and to while away the time would give me further lessons in this useful art, of which I had already some slight knowledge this having reached the ears of our captain we accompanied in turns the occasional reconnoitring parties and made topos of the route taken his work was of the first quality and his draughtsmanship of a very high order the following morning i came across to who was conducting the sick men of his detachment to the doctor he halted an instant to ask me if i was coming to see him that evening and i told him i should be deprived of that pleasure as my section was on piquet duty at five p m at this he grinned and said well then we shall meet later for there will be some fun to-night he then left me and trotted off to rejoin his men i know it was no good trying to obtain further information from him for the doy was like the majority of orientals from whom torture will not wring a secret they have decided to keep so i did not attempt to see him again that day however as i knew that he served as interpreter to our commander when spies were interrogated i inferred from the hint he had given me that some movement was to be made that night my section assembled and were inspected with the guard that evening and afterwards we were dismissed but had to remain dressed and armed in our room in the event of our services being required i took liptay into my confidence and told him of the tip i had received i induced him to do as i did and fill his water-bottle with cold coffee in case of necessity fully dressed with our belt and cartridge cases on we lay down on our cots to snatch a few hours rest at one a m our squad corporal shook us out of our slumbers and together with the other men of our section we snatched up our rifles and assembled outside as quietly as possible here we found a half section of native troops under the orders of to who nodded to me and grinned as i stepped up and took my place in the ranks two hard-boiled eggs and a slice of bread were served out to each man which we were told to put in our wallet for future use a few minutes later captain plessier came upon the scene and noticing that he was not mounted i surmised that our coming peregrinations were to take place over difficult ground so indeed it proved for after the gate had been opened by the sentry our little column went out in silence like a troop of ghosts in indian file turned to the right and proceeded to the southwest across the paddy fields by the narrow ridges which served as paths the night was stifling and pitch dark so dark indeed that each man had to hold on to the wallet of his comrade in front so as not to lose his way thus progress was very slow when we had been walking about an hour and had covered perhaps a mile and a half the blackness of the night was of a sudden lit up by a brilliant flash of lightning which illuminated for the fraction of a second the surrounding country the weird aspect of it with the tall outlines of the palms and bamboo silhouetted against the sky remained with a strange vividness as if photographed upon the retina for several minutes 
this was succeeded by a peal of thunder so deafening that it seemed to split the eardrums and shake the ground beneath us and the rain came down as it only can do in the tropics for a few seconds our little troop was thrown into confusion and some of the men temporarily blinded by the sudden light stepped into the fields where they floundered about with water and mud almost up to their knees after this interruption we proceeded on our way very slowly though for the lightning continued flash following flash in quick succession for an hour and our ears were weary with the crashing of the thunder the track which was of clay was sodden and slippery we were all wet through to the skin and our boots full of water emitted a curious squashing sound at each step fortunately the din of the thunder and the continued thresh of the rain more than covered the noisy advance of our column ten minutes before wet through with perspiration i had mentally cursed the heat now my teeth were chattering and my fingers were numbed with the cold i felt a strange joy at it smiled to myself at the evident truth of to's recent prophecy anent the great waters and thought how appropriate was his term for the downpour for two hours we continued on our slippery way and were then halted on a patch of grass covered with little mounds a village graveyard here our expedition was broken up into little parties the one to which i belonged being composed of ten legionaries and a sergeant and as many tirailleurs with tow at their head we proceeded a short distance and were ordered to be down in some long grass behind a clump of cactus and hibiscus shrubs as we did so i heard the dog say to our sergeant when it will be light we shall see the door of the village from here the path to it is a little to our left from this and the movements i could hear on our right and left i gathered that the remainder of the column was surrounding a village which lay before us but owing to the darkness and the rain i could distinguish nothing ahead of me we had been lying on the ground some minutes and notwithstanding the chill dampness i was almost falling into a doze for the walk had tired me when from the surrounding darkness a figure came noiselessly and crouched beside me the next instant toe's voice whispered in my ear i told you so it has come yes i shivered and i think i have had enough of it nay say not so a few more hours and you will grumble at the heat once more camarade tis a fool who ever complains our land had sore need of the rain the crops will drink this as the mandarin does his yunan tea when the sun rises all the earth will rejoice the voice of the tempest has shut the ears of our enemy to the noisy approach of the linapnaxa european soldier this time we shall surely surprise the brigands therefore we should thank our lord buddha for his great mercy what village is before us friend yen true he answered and in it is a lin Mien, sergeant of the Danam with twenty men they are collecting the taxes and were to have left it this morning but they will never leave it he added with a low chuckle yesterday the spies came and told the captain i was there last night they surely feasted drank much chum chum rice alcohol and smoked many pipes for the headman is a great traitor and in secret a partisan of hamnyi we shall have much trouble to enter i ventured for we have not brought axes 
To chuckled again and said, Let not that trouble thee. I have devised the Onguamba, the captain, literally Lord of Three Stripes, and these fools will open the door themselves, even as I said to him. I turned to chide him for his presumption, but he had glided away silently into the night. The rain had ceased now, almost as suddenly as it had commenced, and the smell of the damp earth and vegetation reeked in the nostrils. Turning, I glanced behind me, and saw that towards the east the sky was grey. In a few minutes the forms of my comrades nearby could be dimly distinguished. The nearest, he was barely a yard away, was a boy of twenty, an Alsatian. He was fast asleep, his head pillowed on his arm, and dreaming pleasantly, for on his lips, which bore no trace of a moustache, I could discern a smile. Fearing lest the sergeant should find him thus, I awoke him, and he thanked me. It was now so light that a few paces away to the left I recognized our captain seated on the ground. He was chewing the end of an unlit cigar. In a low voice he called the sergeant and talked for some moments to him. Then our non-com came from one to the other of us and communicated the instructions he had just received. These were, load and fix bayonets as quietly as possible, lie still until the signal is given by the captain with his whistle, then rise at once and rush for the village gateway and on into the houses beyond. Weapons not to be used until resistance is offered, and every effort must be made to capture an enemy alive. By looking through the foliage before us we could now see in the yet dim light that we were close to a pond or moat covered with rank duckweed and lotus plants. On the other side of this was a big village, surrounded by the usual embankment and bamboo hedge. Presently we could hear the crowing of cocks, barking of dogs, and other sounds of awakening life. The pond was crossed by a dike about six feet wide, forming a path leading to the heavy gateway of the hamlet. This was yet closed. By this time the eastern sky was a bright red-violet, and against it the great leaves of the plantains, the spiky foliage of the macaw palms, and the delicate leafage of the bamboo seemed to be cut out of tinfoil, reminding me of a tropical scene from a drama stage in one of our large London theatres. The birds were out, troops of white-breasted jays scurried from tree to tree with an uncouth cry. Sparrows darted about with an endless twittering, and several carrion crows started a concert among the areca palms inside the village. Suddenly on the horizon there was a glitter, and a convex curve of fire appeared. The mighty ball of the blinding sun rose inch by inch from the rice fields, the wet surface reflecting its light with dazzling vividness. It was already hot, and our sodden linen grew stiffer and drier each instant. All attention was now turned to the village, and behind the gate came the noise of withdrawal of bolts and bars. The heavy ironwood portals swung open, and out stepped a water-buffalo, on whose back straddled a naked youngster, gripping tightly a cord attached to the iron ring in the animal's nostrils. Just outside the unwieldy beast halted its big head, and throwing its great horns right back, sniffed the air. Its eyes seemed turned towards our hiding-place, but there were others behind who were impatient to get out, 
and a native woman darted forward and beat the beast's buttocks with a hoe. The boy on his back, unconscious of the danger in front, drummed his little heels on the black, hairless sides, and the animal moved slowly and reluctantly forward. One, two, three of the beasts stepped out, a fourth was already in the doorway, when suddenly came the shrill order from the whistle. In an instant we were up and racing like madmen for the causeway, almost before the natives with their cattle had realized what had happened. Lipday was in front, leading me by six feet. We had been lying nearest to the path. Toe was panting along at my side. My Hungarian chum was now on the dike, but he slipped on the wet clay and came down with a crash. Both of us jumped clear of him and went sliding along for several paces on the slippery surface. Soon we were up to the first buffalo, which was trying to turn. Toe leaned forward and drove his bayonet into its hindquarters. With a roar it leaped off the path and fell with a mighty splash into the pond, the boy still clinging to its back. I heard a peal of laughter somewhere behind me. On we went again, and the next instant were at the door, in which two of the beasts were wedged. Again the doy's steel darted out, and one of the animals, with a bellow of pain, was forced through, like a cork pushed into a bottle. In our ears rang the yells of the natives, beseeching each other to close the way. The next instant we were through, and I saw a native heroically striving to pull away a bamboo pole so as to let fall an inner gate. But before he could do so, the rearmost buffalo, which was lumbering along in headlong flight, cannoned against him, and he was knocked sprawling. Toe had slipped in front, for we were now running in a narrow lane, where only one could pass at a time. The sides were walls of thick, sun-dried clay, in which, at irregular intervals, were little round loopholes. No one fired from them, though a few seconds had passed since the first alarm was given. Behind us came the clatter of nailed boots, and I turned to see that Lipday, his khaki and accoutrement caked with mud, had caught up with us. He laughed and puffed as my eye caught his. Every few yards the narrow way twisted and turned. We saw nothing, but could hear the cries of alarm of the natives and the thumping gallop of the terrified buffaloes just ahead. Suddenly the doid turned off to the left, through a door in the wall, and the next instant we were in a kind of courtyard covered with red tiles. In the middle was a guava tree in full bloom, and facing us a thatch-covered native house, with green blinds of split bamboo hanging from the roof. As we advanced, one of these was lifted, and a tall, lank native, holding a Winchester at the ready, confronted us. His hair was long and hung over his shoulders. His eyes, still full of sleep, had a fierce, wild glare in them. We spread out and advanced towards him. The Lutuang, headman, opium drunk, said To, surrender to us. The native spat at him, jerked up his weapon, fired at the door, and missed him. Already he had pulled back the lever, preparing to shoot again, when Lipte's rifle spoke. His weapon fell with a clang to the tiles, and his two hands clasped to his breast, he staggered back against the screen which gave way, and fell doubled up under the veranda. With his back against the wall of the house, he watched us as we came to the door. His mouth opened, and he tried to curse. Deo, deo! Then he coughed 
and a rush of blood choked his words. He toppled over on his side as our three rifle-butts descended on its surface, splintering the wooden door of his abode. He had done his best to defend his guest. The scene inside was a strange one. We had expected resistance, but found none, and were perhaps disappointed in consequence. On a big wooden couch, and inside a green mosquito curtain, lay a man dressed in cream-colored silk. Beside him was a tray on which I saw the little silver box, the skewers, and the lamp. The latter was burning, and the brilliant stream of sunshine pouring through the broken door seemed to drown its flicker. The man's face was long and emaciated, and as the light struck it I noticed that his skin was very fair for a native, that he wore a green silk turban, and that his hair was carefully rolled. The fingernails of his left hand, which held the pipe over the flame, were very long, that of the little finger being at least four inches. On the index finger of the same hand was a massive gold ring. Beside him lay a woman who was tending the opium even as I had seen Ba do a few hours earlier. She was dressed in a long stole-like garment of bright green. Neither of the pair moved or looked towards us, and for a few seconds their indifference to our presence seemed complete and contemptuous. When he had finished the pipe he had been smoking, he sat up and nodded to To, who saluted him in the vernacular, saying as he did so, "'Lin Bin, you must surrender and come with us. Fools, but not grave men, resist the inevitable.' There was a tremor in his voice and a gleam in the little sergeant's eye that said only too plainly how gladly he would have slain the rebel then and there. I noticed a glitter on the floor near the bed, bent down and picked up a Spencer carbine and a belt full of cartridges. Attached to it was a hunting knife in a leather sheath and a holster containing a revolver of an American pattern. The Lin Bin slid off the couch and stood before us. "'Cannot I die now?' he said to To. "'No, no, we are to take you alive. Such are the orders which must be obeyed. Then to me, comrade, you who are as strong as an ox, will you hold his arms behind his back one little moment?' I did as he requested, and the doy took the green turban from the head of our prisoner and tied his elbows together, leaving about a yard of the silk loose, the end of which he wound round his own wrist.' Then we left the hut with our captive. As we passed under the veranda, I saw that the Luchong was lying on his side and seemed to be sleeping peacefully. He was quite dead. Lipte picked up the Winchester and walked with me behind To, before whom was the prisoner. We noticed that they were talking together in quite a friendly manner. The woman was following us, and I could hear the low sobbing complaint which she kept up as she trotted behind. We could hear much shouting, and the explosion of firearms in the village not far from us, and it was evident that the rebels were offering a stubborn but tardy resistance. Guessing the importance of our capture, and fearing a rescue, both Lipte and myself shouted to 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 hurry on, and we all started off at a trot. Outside we found the captain attended by a bugler. Our commanding officer was seated on a mound watching the gateway and smoking his cigar. When we got up to him, he said, "'What have we here?' "'A rebel, mon capitaine,' answered Lipte. "'The Lin Bin, mon capitaine,' I replied. 
Lin Yi, mon capitaine, replied Tho, who had learnt the name of the prisoner. And two rifles and a pretty girl, added the officer with a laugh. Then he continued, leave all here in charge of Calvert, the bugler. You, Doy, go back to your section. You two men rejoin Sergeant Beaven in the village, and tell him to get his detachment together and rejoin me here. When we reached the sergeant, all resistance had terminated, and the men were foraging in the huts or securing the prisoners. We communicated the orders. The little column assembled outside again, and we learned that two of our men had been slightly wounded. We had captured six prisoners, taken nine rifles, and five of the enemy had been killed. The surprise had been complete. Although few, if any of us, realized the importance of the capture we had made, it will presently be seen that our morning's work produced results which eventually aided not a little towards the success of the operations on a large scale undertaken against the rebels at the beginning of the following year. We reached Nanam at eleven that morning, and an extra ration of wine was served out to us as a compensation for the drenching we had received. Our prisoners were lodged under the veranda of the house occupied by the native troops, where there was a bar de justice, heavy ironwood stocks, in which the right leg of each of the captives was secured. A guard, furnishing two sentries, was placed over them. They were well fed and suffered no cruelty or insult, but having been captured in armed rebellion there existed no doubt as to what their ultimate fate would be. It is now necessary to give some details concerning the important changes which were taking place at this time in the administration of the country. The government in Paris, influenced no doubt by the growth of rebellion and rapine in the colony, had decided upon the appointment of a governor-general armed with greater power than his predecessors. For this purpose a decree dated 20th April 1891 was issued by the French cabinet which accorded that functionary great freedom of action. According to the new order of things, the governor was vested with absolute power in the colony, and both the civil and military authorities therein were entirely under his control. All appeals or reports made by the heads of departments in Indochina to the minister in the metropolis were to pass through his hands. At this time M. Piquet, the governor, was just returning to France, and the ministry appointed M. de Lanessan, a radical deputy, who had already given proofs of superior ability in parliamentary circles, and who was acknowledged to be a man possessing great initiative, energy, and activity. The new governor-general arrived in the East in May, and although his enemies have reproached him, and not without some cause, with want of tact and conciliation towards the military authorities, there can be no doubt that from his administration dates the era of commercial progress which still continues in Indochina. He was the first to insist on the necessity of constructing railways and good roads in the colony, and much as he did in this respect, for the first railway to Langson owes its origin to him, he would undoubtedly have done more had he not been hampered by the restricted finances at his disposal. As it was, by his vehement insistence on the subject, he caused the investing public of France to realize the latent wealth existing in Tonkin, for the development of which it was absolutely necessary to construct good means of communication. 
he thus paved the way for his successors messieurs rousseau and dumais who thanks to his propaganda eventually secured large loans guaranteed by the government enabling them to construct a system of railways now almost terminated traversing the whole of france's eastern empire and penetrating into two of china's wealthiest provinces Guangxi and yunnan the first care of m de lanessan was to put an end to the intrigues existing at the court of wei having for their object the dethronement of the young king dante and the restoration of the exiled homni to power also he took urgent measures to restore order in tonkin to obtain these results he inquired into the grievances of the natives and adopted pacific methods when possible but when these were of no avail he did not hesitate to employ rigorous and repressive measures he undoubtedly possessed the necessary qualities for an administrator and organizer and a few months after his arrival the residents and local mandarins vied with each other in stamping out with the aid of the native militia the seeds of revolt and discord sown in the delta so that he was able to turn his attention to the central northern and eastern districts of the colony where rebellion and piracy existed in an armed and rampant state to ensure success in this work of pacification m de lesson made every effort to do away with the rivalry among the regular troops and the native militia the latter being controlled by the civil residents to obtain this result he created in the unsettled provinces military zones districts wholly administered by officers in the army so that the powers and responsibilities of the different authorities were clearly divided and defined the all-powerful military authorities were alone responsible for all that went on in the region committed to their care and to the civil authorities was entrusted the administration of the delta provinces this system proved such an excellent one that it has been maintained to this day with few modifications and at the beginning of nineteen o three there were in tonkin four military zones divided up into nine districts with a total population of about two million and a superficial area of twenty thousand square miles thanks to the system introduced by m de lanessan organized rebellion no longer exists in the colony and although the provinces bordering on Guangxi and Guangtung are occasionally ravaged by the chinese bands which cross the frontier the pacification of the country may be said to be complete that the commercial progress of the colony was a slow one at this period there can be no doubt but it was owing principally to the want of means of communication with the interior and also to the prohibitive customs tariff and exorbitant transit rates on goods passing through to china which had been adopted by the french government today things have considerably improved thanks to the railways already built and they will go on improving when all the lines are completed but unless the authorities adopt a broader policy with regard to transit duties on foreign goods imported into yunnan through tonkin reduce the railway freights and modify the existing scale of duties the realization of the full value of the country as a speedy and safe route to the central chinese markets with a consequent prosperity which would result will be lost to france and private enterprise which as yet has developed but slowly notwithstanding the undisputed agricultural and mineral wealth of the tonkin will be brought to a standstill 
End of chapter 4, part 2